If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Uh, we'll be picking up in verse 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. We come uh, to the second day of uh, that holy week. Last time we were in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, and uh, he went into the temple, and he looked around and went back to Bethany as it was drawing that late. And here we turn to the events of the following day in verse 12. Mark writes, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and a leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Trust, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this difficult passage, we pray uh, that your Spirit would give us understanding. As we understand uh, uh, your son, uh, the temple in light of the fig tree, and we come to understand your desire, your will, that we would bear much fruit through abiding in Christ. And so we pray uh, that we would not be like uh, the temple of Jesus' day or like that fig tree. While giving the appearance of fruitfulness, completely lacking fruit. We pray that if there are any among us uh, who are lacking in fruit, uh, that you would make us fruitful believers. Uh, that your spirit would be at work in our lives, uh, pruning away those things uh, that make us unfruitful in your service. We do ask if there are any who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would, that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior, because apart from abiding in him, they cannot bear fruit. And so we pray for that miracle to occur among us today. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. 
So as we consider Jesus had looked at the temple, and we're going to quickly understand that what he saw during his brief inspection of the temple, he did not like. But before we can get to that, we come to the fig tree. The fig tree that stumps uh, many preachers and many commentators. And so, very interesting thing about figs. Figs don't require pollinators. Uh, figs, uh, the fig is actually an inverted flowers. And on a fig tree, uh, the green figs will produce before it comes into full leaf. And so while it might be covered in leaves, it won't have ripe figs. And so Mark tells us uh, that Jesus, uh, on his way back to Jerusalem from Bethany, was hungry. And seeing in the distance, so he sees the tree from afar, it's full of leaves. So he's under the operating assumption, as many would in that time, that at the very least there's going to be unripe figs. Yet he went to see it, if he could find anything on it. And as he draws closer, the promise of this tree proves to be false. He comes to it and he finds nothing but leaves. And Mark says, for it was not the season for figs. They wouldn't have been right, but this tree has none at all. While it gave the appearance of fruitfulness from a distance, as Jesus drew closer, that appearance proved false. And so Jesus says to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So he pronounces a judgment upon this tree that it will never bear fruit because it has not borne fruit at this time. And we scratch our heads at that, especially when we see later on that the fig tree is found withered away, that Jesus' words proved true. But the interpretation and the importance of this fig tree are not found in the fig tree. Now, Jesus was not a horticulturalist, uh, uh, con terribly concerned uh, with uh, pruning away unfruitful pig tre fig trees. This tree is representative and emblematic of the temple system that existed in Jerusalem. Uh, just as Jesus looks at it one day and comes back again, uh, he does the same with this tree. But as he makes his way to Jerusalem, we understand that on that Palm Sunday, the temple did not pass muster. Mark had said in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he's done his inspection, he knows what's going on, and as we see here, he does not like what was going on in the temple. This temple that was supposed to exist for the glory of God, for the people of God, that the name of God would be made known, not just to Judea, but to the nations. He comes to Jerusalem, he enters the temple, and without need of a further inspection, Mark tells us he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. His place that was supposed to be a place of worship, a place of prayer, had been converted into a place of commerce. You have to understand what was going on here. We understand that in light of who was driven out. He overturned the tables of the money changers. See, you're required when you visit a temple to pay a ta temple tax. But 
the temple authorities had a very strict standards on what they would accept as legitimate currency. You had to pay your tax uh, with a Tyrian coin, and Tyrian coinage, the official temple, uh, the official currency of the temple. And so if you brought your gold and silver coins from elsewhere, you would have to exchange your gold and silver coins for these Tyrian coins in order to pay your temple tax. And the money changers, uh, knowing that people were absolutely dependent upon them to get the coinage they need to pay their temple tax, uh, you can imagine which way they swung the exchange rate. They swung the exchange rate in their favor. Moreover, uh, those who had come from afar would be required to buy their sacrifices uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, you have to remember, it wasn't just the people in Jerusalem who would come and offer sacrifices. People from the surrounding areas would have to come and make their sacrifices. So where are they going to purchase their sacrifices? Well, some bright entrepreneurs had the idea uh, that they would set up in the temple courts and sell individuals their sacrifices. And because they were doing such a wonderful service for their fellow Jews, uh, they made sure that they made a decent profit on it. So you had all sorts of commerce going on uh, as Jesus had inspected it the previous day and as he returns uh, the next day, and Jesus puts a stop to it. And we understand the persistence of the temple authorities. Uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, uh, we see that Jesus had come to the temple in John chapter 2, and he had driven them out. Uh, he had uh, uh, told his disciples, tear this temple down, and I will raise it up three days. They later understood he wasn't talking about the physical temple, but he was speaking of the temple that it was his body. But here... Year one, so two years later, he's returned, and the same problem has risen its head. The problem of money changers, the problem of the place of worship being turned into a place of commerce. And so, verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And to ex he explains the purpose of his actions. You know, some might be thinking, has Jesus lost his mind? Has he blown a gasket? He's lashing out in anger. Uh, the other Gospels uh, add the fact that he made a quart of whips to drive out the money changers. What's going on here? Well, Jesus explains what was going on. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, and he quotes from Isaiah, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, taking them to Isaiah. So here, you have to understand uh, the layout of the temple. So you, you would initially have uh, the Gentile court, court of the women. And it, it was increasingly more restricted as you went in. See, for those uh, Gentiles who had come to know the one true and living God, in spite of how Israel was living, because Paul makes clear in Romans that the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of Israel, but under those rare circumstances that a Gentile became a God-fearing individual, uh, the only place that they had to go and worship 
was the temple. The temple was the center of worship. So if you were a Gentile who had come to believe that Yahweh was the God who created the heavens and the earth and the only God deserving of worship and praise and that all the other gods of the nations were dead idols, you would go to the temple. We understand the importance of the temple. In John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus after coming to understand that he is the Messiah. She says, your fathers worship on the temple mount and our fathers worship here. Where should we worship? Jesus tells her the day is coming when the father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. But at this time, the center of worship was the temple. If you were away from the temple and you prayed, you'd pray in the direction of the temple. We see in the Old Testament of the exile community, when Daniel would pray, he would pray in the direction of the temple. The temple represented for the people of God the presence of God on earth. And so here you have the place where the Gentiles should be permitted to go to prayer. And it's, a, it's like a carnival. It's like a flea market. You, you have animals making noises. You have people bartering. Rather than being a place of prayer, Jesus says, you have made it a den of robbers. So not only is there commerce going on, but there is illegal commerce going on. There is immorality going on. These money changers aren't money changers, they're robbers. These people selling the doves to the poorest of the poor for a profit, uh, they're not doing a service, they're serving themselves. Uh, This grand facade that was supposed to point Israel and point the nations to the reality of God made God a mockery. But think, as you would imagine, you're a pilgrim or a God-fearing. You're making your journey to the temple. The temple would have had a majesty to it. It would have been one of the wonders of the world. Even the wailing wall that still exists from Herod's temple, it's an architectural masterpiece when you consider the size of the stones and when you consider the elaborate work that Herod put into improving upon Zerubbabel's temple. But just like that fig tree looked good from a distance as you got closer and closer, reality set in. This system of worship that was to be to the glory of God, that was to point God's people to their sin and their need of grace and redemption, had simply become a commercial transaction to them. Rather than the temple being a place of prayer, not just for Israel, but for all nations, it was made a den of robbers. This would have been very unpopular for Jesus to say on several levels. Many of the zealots and many of the more devout Jews thought that when the Messiah was going to come, that he would drive the Gentiles away. But here Jesus is saying that the house of prayer is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Even now, before the cross, Jesus is showing his attention, uh, his intention of dying not just for the people of Israel, but for Gentiles like you and I. And what he said was not popular. 
Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. They feared him. He sought to brought, they thought he was trying to bring reformation. He thought he was a challenge to their livelihood. And so they thought to destroy him because the, they thought the crowds would pull them down and put him up. But they did not understand what he had come for. He came to be destroyed by them. He came to be handed over by them. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Then he comes again. That Tuesday, verse 20. We come to understand more what's going on here. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. This thing that did not prove fruitful that you pronounced your judgment upon is destroyed. Mark doesn't record this, but Luke does, that, that in Jesus going through the temple, he pronounced judgment upon the temple, that not one stone would be left upon another, that, that God's judgment was against this temple system because it, it Contrary to its intended divine purposes, it failed to be what it was. It had become, indeed, a, a, a den of robbers from the high priest all the way down to the lowest money changer. Luca tells us of the widow who drops in her last mite and goes home. You know, oftentimes we think of that, well, what a wonderful picture of sacrificial giving. But imagine somebody tells you a, a widow gave her last two pennies to the government to pay her taxes and went home. Nobody would say, well, what a wonderful picture of sacrificial giving. If you give your last two pence, you're going home to die. Jesus was infuriated by this system that should have borne fruit, that had been warned with the coming of John the Baptist. The judgment was coming. John the Baptist had warned his hearers uh, that the axe is laid to the root, repent and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So you had from the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry to this point in Jesus' ministry, a message of repentance, that the people of God must bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and yet there had been no heart transformation. They were just as alienated from God as before John the Baptist had begun his ministry just as much as before Christ had begun his ministry. And so judgment was looming. Just as uh, the judgment of Jesus fell upon the tree that withered up and died, uh, this old system would wither up and die too. 70 AD, the Roman army would conquer Jerusalem for the final time and destroy the temple. down to its roots. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. It's an interesting response, isn't it? You know, Peter is amazed that uh, Jesus has caused this fig tree to wither up and die. He's amazed at the power of God, and Jesus' response is, have faith in God. 
What was that needed? Command. Because what Peter and the disciples had seen the day before in the temple, in the lives of their religious leaders, and in the whole temple practice, was not faithfulness to God. So we had to have faith in God. In response to the faithlessness and fruitlessness that you have seen, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Another challenging saying of Jesus. Are we supposed to go around uh, you know, when there's a mountain in our way, tell the mountain to be uprooted and to cast into the sea? No, Jesus is anticipating the judgment that is going to fall upon the temple. Whoever says to this mountain, the temple mount, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Some uh, say that Jesus is using that as a proverbial expression to point to how prayer overcomes the impossible. There's truth to that. We have to remember, not too long before this, uh, Jesus had told his disciples that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. As Jesus is drawing closer to Calvary, he's going to lay down his life uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And they are going to have to do the impossible. They are going to have to bring a message of forgiveness to a world that desperately needs it. Have faith in God. True, they say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. The danger in asking and doubting whether God can indeed do that. The context here, as we see later on, is the context of forgiveness. The disciples are going to need a lot of forgiveness later on. You know, remember, uh, uh, Judas is going to betray him, and with the exception of John, the other ten are going to run and hide to fulfill the prophecy, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. James warns the danger of asking while doubting at the same time. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Again, Jesus says, who does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Oh, is Jesus telling us uh, that if we pray for a Mercedes Benz, it's, uh, we absolutely believe that that Mercedes Benz can drop out of the heavens into our parking lot, that we're going to have a Mercedes Benz? 
Or is Jesus telling us that we can pray for a million dollars to miraculously appear in our bank account? That if we are absolutely committed and believe that that is possible, that it will happen? No. You have to keep reading what he says. He says... Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. If you remember earlier in Jesus' ministry at the Sermon on the Mount and on one other occasion, Jesus' disciples asked him, Teacher, teach us to pray. And he told them, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or trespasses, depending on which translation you use. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. So Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples that it is through prayer that we come to know the power of divine forgiveness. Now if you remember, as Jesus began his earthly ministry in the Gospel of Mark, he's in the house and there's the paralytic and his friends uh, carry him in, they take the roof apart and they lower him down and Jesus looks at this paralytic man who required the help of four people to lower him in through the ceiling to get to Jesus and he looks at him and says son your sins are forgiven and uh, the religious leaders questioned in their heart who is this that has the authority to forgive sins and Jesus asked them knowing what was in their heart which is easier to do to say get up in your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven. And he says uh, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say, get up and walk. The paralytic got up and walked. Jesus began his ministry with an understanding that the forgiveness of sins was humanly impossible. You know, it's easy to move a mountain. If you have enough dynamite and enough explosives and enough workers, you can move a mountain. You in your flesh and in your own strength cannot remove the mountain of your sin. It leaves you separated from God. But in Christ and through the finished work of Christ, uh, we come to God and we're able to uh, confess our sins. 1 John chapter 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If in prayer we confess and claim that forgiveness, believing with certainty that God has done what we could not do, then we we receive it. Prayer is holding out our hands saying, Father, forgive me. And we receive it. This isn't about how we can build up our finances. This isn't a, a magical cure-all to make all of our earthly trials go away. This is a reminder that prayer is the means by which we come to the throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received and it will be yours. 
And when you sin and you struggle and you find yourself falling short and you confess your sins, you can have assurance that God hears and answers your prayer, that He has grace for you in your time of need, that He is abundant in His grace to forgive you in your sins. The people that look at this and see it as a license for prosperity theology, uh, they're misunderstood in where their problem is. My, My problem isn't my bank account. My problem isn't my health. I've got Crohn's disease. That's not my problem. My problem is I'm a sinner and I need the grace of God. I need God's mercies to be new every morning. And what Jesus says is that in faith I can come to God in prayer and know that my sins are forgiven. And know, have certainty that my sins are forgiven by believing in Him. But there's a caveat. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. When Jesus told his disciples earlier to pray, he told them in Matthew, we see it in Mark 11, 15, and 18, and Matthew 21, 12 through 16, he tells them, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. See, if I understand that I am a sinner and I have fallen short of the glory of God and I am absolutely dependent upon His grace and mercy, then it is incumbent upon me if I understand that others in my life are in the same position that I am, I have to forgive them too. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, Jesus is telling us uh, that we really can't go into the right spirit of prayer if we're carrying a grudge with us. You know, it's really hard to be empty-handed to receive grace and pardon and forgiveness if you're holding your grudge. You know, you're like, uh, let let me finish praying so I can go deal with so-and-so. You'll never pray. You, You can't empty-handedly receive the offer of forgiveness if you're withholding forgiveness. Jesus is telling us that as we draw near to him in prayer, we come completely empty-handed. Not only of our good things, you know, Paul in Philippians, he says of his former life, he counted all things lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Lord. Now, we might be willing to let go of our reputations, our images, our view of ourselves, our high opinion of ourselves to pray. It's really hard for us to let go of our bitterness, our grudges, and resentment. In, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, had warned them uh, if anyone had fault with his brother, that they were to leave their sacrifice and be reconciled to their brother before they made offering and this is the same principle that Jesus is getting at here and whenever you stand praying forgive if anyone if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses
See, the amazing reality of the Christian life is if we understand that we're sinners in need of forgiveness and we have actually genuinely been brought to the place where we see that and we come empty-handed to God, we're not going to be holding our grudges against everyone else. You know, Mark uh, isn't so much for the parables, but the Gospel of Matthew, it seems every other parable that Jesus has is about somebody withholding forgiveness. You know, there's the di- Gospel of Luke, uh, there's the parable of the dishonest manager. He, he's uh, fired, and no, the unforgiving servant. The master forgives him a great deal of money and he uh, goes and he rattles the neck of the other trying to shake money out of him and the master sees it and he has him beaten and thrown out into the outer darkness weeping and gnashing of teeth and Jesus says that the one who has been forgiven much loves much. If we have understood and received forgiveness we will extend forgiveness to others. Jesus is turning things on its head as it were. He's turned his back against the temple system. See, the disciples, they would have thought, if you need forgiveness, you need to be right to God, you need to get your sacrifice, you need to bring it to the temple, you need to hand it over to the priest, and there needs to be a sacrifice. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what he's going to do in just a few short days because he is going to be the sacrifice that deals with our sins once and for all, that makes forgiveness a reality in our lives and enables us to extend forgiveness to one another. Rather than looking to the temple to deal with their problems, a temple that had fallen short and had proven unfruitful, they are to look to God in prayer. And in prayer, God does the impossible. Your Christian life began that way. Your Christian life began, I don't care what you prayed or how you prayed, but it began with prayer. Like the tax collector in the Gospel of Luke. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And when you pray to God, God did what was impossible for man. He forgave your sins. Fully and finally, as the Psalms say, he has cast them away as far as the east is from the west. Uh, He has sunk them away, never to be retrieved again. And because of that, every time we sin and stumble and fall short, we know that we, we can draw near to our Father in prayer, our who loves us, who has adopted us, and find fresh forgiveness. Because Christ has done what we could not do. Christ has done something far greater than move a mountain into the sea. He has removed our sins from us. He has removed the mountain of our sin and cast them into the sea of God's forgetfulness through His perfect life and death. And so as we come to this time of invitation, I ask you, have you come to know that in your life? You know, one of the quickest ways to know whether you have experienced that is whether you're carrying around malice and bitterness and resentment towards others all throughout your life, if that's the mainstream of your life, Jesus has told us 
that if you have anything against your brother, you're to forgive so that your Father in heaven, Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The, the best way to know that you are a forgiven sinner is to look at your life and see if you're a forgiving person. Forgiveness is to mark the life of a Christian. The Apostle Paul uh, uh, wrote in one of his epistles that we are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. So as we come to this time of invitation, look at your life. Are you a forgiving person? Are you incapable of forgiveness? Because the fact of the matter is, once you know the gracious pardon that God has given to you and what you have done to God... Moves your heart to forgiveness. And I think of the story of Corrie ten Boom at one of her speaking engagements. Uh, one of the concentration camp guards uh, walked up to her and said uh, uh, how wonderful there was that there was forgiveness of sin and reached out his hand to her and she prayed in that moment that God would just give her the strength to hold out and grasp the hand of this man uh, who was responsible for the death of her sister in a concentration camp. And somehow, miraculously, God made her hand move and extend his hand and embraced this man who had been a concentration camp guard, who had been a source of misery and enabled her to display the grace and forgiveness that she had received. And it all starts with knowing that grace yourself. Knowing what Christ was going to do, that He was going to be destroyed for our sins and rise again victorious on the third day. And so if you haven't come to know that, I, I encourage you, pray. Pray now and God can do the impossible. God can deal with your sin right here and right now. Because Christ has paid the penalty for your sin on Calvary. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have done what we could not do. That on Calvary, Christ was bearing the mountainous weight of our sin so that we would be able to draw near to you in prayer and know forgiveness so that we could receive pardon where once we deserve judgment. And we pray that our lives as believers would bear the fruit of repentance, that the fruit of forgiveness would be seen in our life as we extend the forgiveness that you have given us to others. And we pray that if there are any in here this morning who have not come to know the freedom of forgiveness that today they would come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would come to know that He has done what they could not do by dying for them, for their sins, so that they even now could call to you and find forgiveness. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.